When you talk about investing millions in a neglected city, buying up old buildings, funding small businesses and startups, and creating the happiest community on earth, well, people listen. So it's no surprise that word quickly spreads about Tony Shea's grand plans and his open checkbook. The pilgrimages to Vegas begin. It's like that gold rush attitude. You'd be in downtown, like in a bar or on the street or doing something. You'd, ha you'd literally have people come up and say, I've got this great idea for an app. You'd be like, who are you? From far-flung entrepreneurs to local artists, everyone wants to get in on the action of the downtown project. Picture this scene. If you're in Vegas, if you can sort of buddy up with Tony at a party, like you're having fun and you get your startup funded, like that's kind of this amazing dream. No stuffy boardrooms and suits here. In Tony's Vegas, the magic happens at cocktail bars and late night raves, or in his swanky apartment, famous for its wall of sticky notes filled with pitch ideas from various acolytes. Are we friends? Am I your employee? Am I pitching to you right now a concept? Are you considering funding my thing? And these blurry lines are exactly what Tony wants. He's not an ordinary leader. He's collapsing the boundaries between company and city, investor and friend, work and party. Just like at Zappos, the shoe business he built into a billion-dollar empire, he believes that if the downtown project unfolds in a fun, spontaneous, organic way, the rest will take care of itself. Who wouldn't want to get involved? It's sort of a recipe for getting, well, for one, a lot of smart people who are interesting culturally and innovating and stuff, but it's also a recipe for getting a lot of really predatory people around you who can engineer a situation where they can take advantage of your generosity and the fact that no one person can handle all that. So will Tony's utopia prevail? Or will the qualities that once made him beloved come back to bite him? I'm Nastran Tavakoli Far, and from Imperative Entertainment and Vespucci, this is The Cost of Happiness. Episode 4 Baby God, Man King. What's up, everyone? It's Reality Steve, your number one source for all things Bachelor Nation and reality TV. Every day, I'm giving you the behind-the-scenes juice and your info on all your Bachelor Nation stories and also interviewing some of your favorite reality stars. My name has been synonymous with spoilers, but I'm so much more than that. Give me a listen. The Reality Steve Podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen. Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about how to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford Anything, wherever you listen. When you say to Las Vegas, they think, oh, it's horrible, sort of mercenary, and it's, sure, it is, right, and there's all the gambling. When I was there, I never gambled, but I found the people and the kind of space is super interesting. 
Oliver Marlowe was part of the downtown project Gold Rush. Now back in the UK, he runs a company called Studio Tilt, which designs co-working spaces around the world. He started it after years as a freelancer, where he was trudging from coffee shop to coffee shop in search of a place to work. One day he thought, why don't I set up a shared office for freelancers like me, who could benefit from both collaboration and community? I meet him at a site he's working on in the city of London, in the heart of the financial district, full of cold, imposing buildings and serious-looking people in sharp suits. Oliver's been tasked with creating a more collaborative workspace for a company in the city. The space, on the 10th floor of a skyscraper, overlooks the famous Lloyds of London building. It's really interesting how today, even banks and insurance companies have absorbed these tech world ideals of collaboration, community and collisions. We're, we're month, a month away. With long hair and a beaming smile, Oliver exudes laid-back charm. He has the creative vibe of a thespian, and he's very thoughtful. Like here, for example, when you come around this corner, so you're walking into the space, but you've also then got a staircase from the floor below. You've got every, everyone coming from this direction. Everyone's going to be colliding. You can see how someone like Oliver might align well with Tony Shea. And back in 2012, this caught Tony's attention. Oliver and his team at Project Tilt were invited by the Downtown Project to come over and join the party. The way that it was described to me was Tony Shea wanting to turn downtown Las Vegas into the co-working capital of the world. The offer was too tempting to pass up. Abundant resources to build community spaces and to regenerate a neighbourhood? Uh, yes, please. The plan in that way was buying up lots of the downtown lots, converting buildings, changing things. So, for example, an arts one, which we were looking at, an education one, a maker's one entrepreneurship, tech. It just seemed like a really fascinating proposition. So Oliver relocates to Sin City, and soon after arriving in Vegas, he's tasked with developing a multi-purpose art space, a vibrant hub for studios, co-working, workshops and galleries. So we were asked to work on what was going to be called the Ninth Street Art Centre, and that was basically an existing building, and we were in terms of our work where we do workshops around the, the community of engagement or the people that would use a space and how they would use it. In designing the project, Oliver sets out to involve the artists who might actually end up using the space themselves. We would bring those people together, we would go through a process of understanding the kind of needs and brief of that. Already, even at that very early stage, there was a political dimension to who was willing to engage with Downtown Project and who wanted to resist it almost, you could say. So from the start, things are tricky. Certain groups of artists and groups of people already in the space who had cafes or bars in that area who really weren't that keen on having this sort of development approach arriving. By this sort of development approach, I'm guessing Oliver means tech people from out of town who have a lot of money parachuting into a pre-existing community. One particular guy in the, in the workshop said, you know, you can't just come over from the UK and tell us what to do and how we should do it. 
And of course, at the end of the day, the Downtown Project isn't a charity. So members of the community who want to get involved and perhaps start their own businesses are faced with the reality of a for-profit entity. As is often the case, right, it's probably a 50-50 split where you've got that resistance as well as people that are ready and happy to engage. But despite these initial bumps, Oliver is undaunted. He actually sees some discontent as a healthy sign that people care. He continues to lead what he calls co-design workshops with the community in an attempt to figure out what each of the stakeholders want. If you're having a co-design workshop and nobody at some point stands up and says it's never going to work, then you're not doing it right. But them saying, actually, from a practical level, we don't have good glassmaking facilities or, you know, a, a sort of a kiln would be really helpful that everyone can use. So there was... As is really interesting from our point of view when we do co-design, it's that we're not looking for a consensus, but we're just trying to draw out and understand where ideas are coming from and who's got impetus and engagement. After some tough meetings, he feels like he's breaking ground. But just as he's starting to win people over, he receives some unfortunate news. I got an email, and that email came via the Downtown Project team we were told that Tony had decided to turn the arts centre into a school. It's still there, I think. It's called the Ninth Bridge School. So that was then a total shift. In an instant, the Downtown Project's plans change. All that effort and engagement that had gone into planning the arts centre is suddenly for naught. The artists and community members Oliver had been carefully cultivating are not happy. You know, a lot of shouting and fuck you and why is this and you know just that kind of disappointment I suppose that comes with being promised something and then having it taken away. For Oliver this abrupt turn is demoralizing and disconcerting. He begins to wonder does the downtown project have a strategy? I don't think there was a piece of paper somewhere that said the downtown project in 10 years will have five buildings and X number of people in the community. Again, you can you could sense that within the downtown project team that there was a lot of competing agendas anyway. The strategy, it seems, basically lives inside Tony's head. It felt like being in the court of like a Elizabethan king or queen, right? It depended on where maybe Tony's head was at at certain times. Oliver realises that volatility and uncertainty might actually be part of the DNA of the downtown project. It wasn't really clear what it was. Everyone he spoke to had a different sense of what it actually was and what it was for and how it would end up. Who and what is the downtown project for? Is it for Tony and his tech world buddies? Is it for the employees of Zappos, the company Tony still helms? Is it for the people already living in Vegas? Or is it for the bottom line? Tony might say that it's all of these things. As we know well, his business philosophy is driven by the idea that if you focus on building community and delivering happiness to everyone involved, everything else will work itself out. But hearing Oliver's experience, this is all starting to sound a little fuzzy. But one thing is clear. Most of the people involved in the downtown project, they're newcomers, outsiders, rushing in from elsewhere in search of friends, purpose, a fortune, or some combination thereof. And like the influx of people who were drawn west for gold some two centuries prior, the presence of these outsiders has a huge impact. Because, of course, 
There are already communities in downtown Vegas when Tony and his crew arrive, and they've long had their own aspirations. People think that the redevelopment of downtown happened only because of Tony Shea and, and Downtown Project, and that is farthest from the truth. This is Paco Alvarez. Vegas born and bred, Paco's worked in museums and galleries and curated events across the city for decades. His parents moved to Vegas in 1969, just as another billionaire was trying to transform the place. My father had landed a position at the Landmark Hotel and Casino, uh, which at the time had been owned by Howard Hughes. First, Paco follows in his father's footsteps, working in hotel restaurants. The Mirage had opened in 1988. The uh, Excalibur opened. The Luxor opened. We opened the MGM. And I stayed at the MGM for three years. Treasure Island opened up. I mean, the 1990s in Vegas was just wild. You know, everybody was making money. Paco's dad had specific ideas for his son's career in Vegas hospitality. He wanted his son to become a butler. There's not very many butlers left in Las Vegas today, but back then it was a very prestigious position. We called them whales here in Las Vegas. And a butler has to know how to cook, has to know how to launder clothes. And basically, when you are a butler for one of these very ultra-wealthy people, you basically stay in the hotel with them. You, you know, the, they will stay in the mega suite. You'll have an adjacent room to yourself. And you're basically at beck and call 24-7 as a butler, but the money is sick. I mean, the money's in the hundreds of thousands of dollars, let alone the enormous tips. Paco applies to be a butler, but doesn't get the job. And anyway, he soon decides that hotel work isn't his calling. I quit, and I never worked in a hotel again after that. I've always been passionate about the arts, and that my career led me to work in museums in my first job. As Paco builds his reputation in the art scene, a new mayoral candidate runs for office in 1999. His name is Oscar Goodman, husband of today's mayor, Carolyn Goodman. As a defence attorney... Oscar had represented some of the leading organized crime figures in Las Vegas. Everyone laughed. No one's going to elect a guy who, you know, used to represent Tony Spilatro and, and the mob attorneys. He is elected. And what does he want to do? Revitalize downtown Vegas and turn it into a cultural and artistic hub. Sound familiar? People were already talking about an arts district. People were already looking at downtown Las Vegas as, you know, this new empty space that needed to be redeveloped. Now, not to get too finicky about it, but basically in Vegas, there's an arts district and there's downtown. They're very close to each other, but they have something of a rivalry. And back in the 1990s, people involved in the arts district see the potential of downtown. The trouble is, downtown is a difficult, neglected neighbourhood. It has a huge homeless population, and the police turn a blind eye to crime. How are we going to move downtown, especially young people like me at the time, encourage people, artists, creatives, to move downtown if it's not safe and the cops don't care? And it took a long time to convince the cops to get out of their cars, off their horses, and to walk the beat. But with the mayor now on board... Slowly but surely, downtown starts to change. We began seeing an inkling of artists starting to move into the area. 
and young professionals moving downtown because they love the character of these old 1930s, 40s, and 50s homes. And again, rents were cheap. A central feature of the Vegas art scene is First Friday, which Paco helped to get off the ground. First Friday is really kind of the linchpin of the arts district. It's really what brings the crowds. And it started off 20 years ago as a ragtag little event of some 300 local artists. If you wanted to get an art fix in Vegas, you went to First Friday, which exposed you not just to the galleries we had in downtown, but also to art studios and artists. Just the sort of thing a shrewd developer might want to check out. I think it was a phone call from my friend Melissa Warren. And she called me. She says, Paco, are you available to give a tour of First Friday to a VIP? That VIP is Tony Shea. And one evening in 2011, Paco takes him around. He was very shy and very quiet, very reserved. The tour is pretty uneventful. But then... Unbeknownst to me that literally two months after I gave Tony his first tour first Friday, he would end up buying the entire event, which was a shock to the system. This is before the downtown project has officially launched, but the idea is already in Tony's head and he's laying the groundwork. He sees the success of First Friday in the Arts District and perhaps thinks that he can use that success to his advantage in his quest to transform downtown. But for the locals, the purchase of First Friday is astonishing. And for some of them, it's very concerning. The arts community was petrified. They were like, oh my God, what's going to happen? And I took a very pragmatic approach to it. I said, you know, I knew First Friday was struggling financially. Paco thinks we've been toiling away for years. Maybe this is the change we need. When Tony and company purchased it, it had already evolved into a small festival, into all of a sudden it becoming Burning Man. It was exciting. I mean, don't get me wrong. It was exciting. He gave it the spark, I think, that it needed, but it was almost kind of prophetic. Paco sees possibilities in Tony's sudden presence in Vegas. The arts are financially strapped, so why not use this outsider money to their advantage? He tries to source investment for the Liberace Museum, where Paco is chairman. The museum is a collection devoted to the iconically flamboyant pianist and entertainer. There were two people at this meeting, and I pitched them the idea. I said, look, I'm not, I'm not interested in asking for any money yet, but we wanted to put this on your radar that we were going to move this museum downtown. And like halfway through the meeting, this person literally looked at me and she says, what about you? What are you doing? And she asked me what I did. Was I happy at my job? And, and I said, you know, it's, it's a job. She said, I know that you're planning on starting your own business, but would you at all be interested in coming and working at Zappos? Paco is stunned. What would I do, sell shoes? <laughs> it was one of those random, it was a shock to the system. But he's intrigued enough to take the leap and the paycheck. His job at Zappos is curator. This involves a bunch of different things. He becomes the official tour guide for the company's new headquarters in the former Las Vegas City Hall building, taking visitors through the whimsical space filled with art, ping pong tables and video games. He's also in charge of a Zappos store called Z Boutique. Paco may have initially had his doubts, but soon he's all in. And then the arts community 
people were like, oh, he drank the Kool-Aid, he drank the Kool-Aid. And I tell people, I didn't just drink the Kool-Aid. I actually mainlined. I would have a needle with the Zappos Kool-Aid and I would shoot it up or I would I'd have a drip. He loves the culture at the company. My desk was in a ball pit. I mean, it was really remarkable. I don't think there'll ever be anything like Zappos. And I'm glad I was able to experience that. And I got to experience what Tony was like. Many aspects of work are surprisingly relaxed. You know, if you want to have a little shot of something in the middle of the day, you know, it was not uncommon for people to have bottles of alcohol on their desks. Paco becomes the point person helping Tony make investments in art and culture in Vegas. So if you're a Vegas artist hoping to benefit from Tony's money, you better be on Paco Alvarez's good side. It was Paco Alvarez, I'm pretty sure, who was the person who said, hey, Tony Shea, there's this guy, Tony Bondi. Meet another Tony, Tony Bondi. I live in downtown Las Vegas. I've been occupied uh, as an artist since I was about five. I first met Anthony Bondi on a hot summer night at the back of Ferguson's, a beautifully refurbished motel turned into a retail space in the downtown project. He's quirky and brilliant, and he looks somewhat like a zany professor, cracking funny observations in between heavy analyses about the American West. Anthony thinks Paco directed Tony to his artwork. I had the great fortune to be uh, involved in the uh, glory golden years of Burning Man. So when it was time for uh, the downtown project to begin purchasing art, one of my interactive pieces ended up in the lobby of Zappos. The piece is called Deus Ex Machina, and Anthony describes it as an evocation of a medieval model of the cosmos. It's a series of wheels with various figures on them. When you turn a handle, the wheels spin and the figures come into close proximity with each other. Interestingly, however, none of the figures actually ever hit each other. No collisions to speak of here. I made $3,000, which broke all of my records, my previous records for sale of a piece of art. This time, I pay visit to Anthony at his studio near downtown Vegas. There's some things hanging from the ceiling, loads and loads of feathers, big metal hoops. There's a box full of rubber balls, rubber snakes. The space is delightfully ramshackle and full of curiosity. It also houses some of Anthony's artworks. A favourite of mine is a piece called The Iron Curtain. So this is a large metal rack, and it's laced with row upon row of ball bearings. Now, when you step through it, it's really trippy. My senses were thrown off balance. Um, it's, it's really cool. It's so cool. It, it's kind of like, it's a bit like being in a kaleidoscope or something. Brent, Anthony's good friend and fellow artist, has also stopped by. I'm Brent Holmes. I am a creative roustabout living and working in Las Vegas, Nevada. I have been here since 1999 consistently. I've never made one slim dime off of the downtown project or Zappos. Brent, as you can tell, doesn't waste any time. The pair are a classic double act. Brent is talkative and rambunctious, with an imposing physique to match. He's often dressed in extravagant boots and huge hoop earrings, looking like a cross between a cowboy and a pirate. Anthony is older and wiser, speaking only to share pearls of wisdom. 
And so how would you describe the art scene in downtown before Tony came? It wasn't terribly insular. It was very accepting, very open. It was really divergent. Uh, when I came here from the East Coast, I'd never seen an art scene quite as both open-ended and kind of fun-loving as Las Vegas. It didn't bother to take itself too seriously, and that was deeply appealing. Brent and Anthony are doing pretty well in this scrappy DIY environment. It suits them. But of course, they have higher hopes. So when they hear about Tony Shea and his ambitious plans to develop the arts downtown, there is perk up. I think for Las Vegas, because we are such an underfunded, under-recognized and under-cared-for city when it comes to fine art, we really thought this guy was going to be a man of the people. And I'd say, I think I first heard rumblings about Tony sometime in 2008. You know, there was this moment where we thought, oh, this guy's going to come in and we're going to have fine art spaces and he's going to help support galleries and he's going to help us, you know, create a city that's actually has the strength of a cultural hub city, or at least create cultural hub spaces. Tony's got prestigious credentials and eccentric tastes. Maybe he and downtown Vegas are a perfect match. There was, I'd say, a brief year in which everybody downtown thought Tony Shea was going to solve the problem of creating culture in Las Vegas, the jaded and the unjaded. And... One of the things I really love about Las Vegas is that we're an accepting and open and caring community. And we have a lot of tolerance and forgiveness. We said, well, you know, we'll wait for it. Maybe it's a couple of years out. Well, okay, we'll wait for it. Well, look what he's doing over there. That could be really interesting. That could be really great. When Anthony the artist learns that Tony the investor wants to buy one of his pieces, well, he's thrilled. But his excitement wanes as the purchase unfolds. I recognized that I was dealing with people who had no background whatsoever in, in art or the purchase of art or the sale of art or how it works in any way, which was very curious. And that was something that I think was experienced by a whole bunch of people in a lot of different contexts. The Downtown Project's approach does not inspire confidence among artists. And so there was this succession of these demands, these negotiations with the community of, the, of these artists, all of whom came back with the same thing. These people have no idea what they're talking about. Mm -hmm. They're offering us prices that are absurd and they don't want to talk. Who says you just immediately half the price when somebody quotes you a price? So like, I would offer a price and the downtown project people would just counter offer with half of it. Right. Like that was a normal thing. Right. How did artists find this? Ridiculous. Yeah. Absurd. The prices weren't taken out of the air. It was because people were selling their work. And again, this is work that has a great deal of expense in its materials, production, etc., etc. And apart from acquiring a few artworks, it doesn't seem like the downtown project is as keen on elevating local artists as it had advertised. Those murals that you see downtown, none of those, from what I know, are artists that lived or worked in Las Vegas. After a year of nothing but piecemeal and non-committal gestures, so a random purchase here and an unfinished art centre there, Brent and Anthony start questioning Tony's motivations altogether. If you are engaging in a large-scale gentrification project in any city in the world at this point, you know if you point to the arts, 
as something that's important and vibrant in that area, then all of a sudden investors go, oh, the arts, that means we're about ready to gentrify. Mm -hmm. And so I think he just took a play out of every real estate developer's book. The highfalutin ideas around the downtown project, you know, community, happiness, collaboration, they start to ring especially hollow. You're a real estate developer, then don't sell me on your magnanimity, your kindness, <laughs> your care for other human beings. Don't sell me on your support. Just tell me this is a land grab. I'm going to make a shit ton of money and maybe you'll be able to have a bagel shop in the basement. And one day, while Brandt is working downtown, he encounters something else that intensifies his concerns. I started to notice the downtown rangers and their activities towards the homeless population. The downtown rangers are a private security force hired by the downtown project. The downtown rangers were employed to be helpful to visitors to downtown. They wore brown button-down shirts, either pants or shorts, khaki, and they had a large yellow R with an exclamation point on the end of it. They would give directions and they would follow families around and be assistant to a certain extent. They were not armed in any way from what I could tell, but if a vagrant or a drunk seemed to be mildly problematic, especially on a busy Saturday or Sunday afternoon or evening, they would be the people that called the police. There was no, hey buddy, do you just need a glass of water? Hey buddy, are you hungry? For an organization purporting to build community, this is troubling. I came to terms with the fact that, A, it had been a few years and I'd seen no real improvement or development or support for the fine arts community, except for a couple of art sales like Anthony here. But B, I then was watching, you know, sad little homeless men that, yeah, they were drunk or high or possibly mentally ill that that you didn't you didn't want them in your backyard I, who who's going to say they do but like you were watching these same people that really did live down there being you know forcibly pushed out the downtown project brent thinks is beginning to look like a charade it was about then, and I was working there, so I was there every day, and I kept noticing, oh, that guy that just said a really nice thing to me on my way to my car is now radioing for two more rangers to talk to this homeless woman on the corner. And by the time I get back from my car or my lunch break, the police have made the homeless woman disappear. If I was a multimillionaire that was about community and I was in a community with a homeless problem, then I would also be working towards helping to assist or house or change the lives of those homeless people, not treating them as the larger city apparatuses do as a problem that needs to be removed from the area so that the area can be more palatable for people with more delicate sensibilities. That's when I started going, I don't actually think these people are here for community. I don't think this, this man is here to benefit anyone but himself.
While Brent, Anthony and other artists in Vegas are growing increasingly cynical about the downtown project's intentions, big changes are underway on the corporate side. In Holacracy, there are no longer any hierarchical power structures. Instead, there are these kinds of... In 2013, a year into the downtown project, Tony rolls out a new experimental way to run his company. This applies mainly to Zappos. But remember, Zappos is headquartered in downtown Vegas and its employees live alongside people involved in the downtown project. And of course, Tony's at the top of it all. As Zappos curator Paco Alvarez says... The relationship between Zappos and downtown project was pretty incestuous. And there were people that worked at Zappos that were involved with downtown project. And the, the lines between the two were so blurred. So a change to one affects the other. The new plan is called Holacracy. It's a system of management that is basically anti-management. There are no traditional teams, bosses, or even fixed job descriptions. It's often referred to as a form of decentralized management, and it was gaining a lot of traction in the tech scene in the early 2010s after being largely developed and popularized by the entrepreneur Brian Robertson. The name comes from the Greek word holons, referring to units that are independent and self-sufficient, but also reliant on the greater whole to which they belong. From a business perspective, the idea is that if you remove bureaucracy, so things like strict protocols and systems and rigid hierarchies, then you increase employees' abilities to act quickly, to solve problems and to innovate. While some smaller startups were trying it out, Tony's decision to implement it at a large company like Zappos was a really big deal. Tony said, I don't want to pay people to manage other people. Paco is truly excited when Holacracy is launched, especially because he used to work in government and he always felt bogged down by bureaucracy. Holacracy is a bureaucracy-busting system. It, it, the idea is that it, it takes away the obstacles to getting the work done. So you can then invest that money in the projects and your programs, right, without having to ask your supervisor for permission. Like in government... To spend $500, you have to get permission from your supervisor. To spend $1,500, you have to get permission from the vice president. So it's very bureaucratic. In the holocratic system, all of that goes away. Paco thinks, great. Now he might actually have more freedom to invest in his hometown art scene, the reason he took the job in the first place, and to really make an impact. But in practice, holocracy does not go according to plan. It was chaos. People stopped getting on the phone. The managers were scrambling. Suddenly, the structures that had held the company together for years vanish. And what's left is utter confusion. Managers who didn't input the job descriptions of their employees or their own job descriptions or the rules of their departments and what their departments did within the Zappos company. And one of the consequences of this supposedly communal system is ruthless competition. It sounds great, but in practice, it didn't work because the people that were in management before found ways to game the system to maintain their power. To be clear, Paco's overall take is that Tony is a visionary. He sees great potential in holacracy. Perhaps the issue is that Tony is a bit too ahead of his time because following the rollout of Holacracy, 
the company hemorrhages staff. That caused 14% of the company to quit. And meanwhile, where's Tony? At the time, there were a lot of stories about how he had become withdrawn and wasn't participating in the same way. Alyssa Walker, the journalist we met in episode three. He was really this, like, very charismatic leader. But amidst the pandemonium, that charm is notably absent. Owen Carver, a former Zappos employee, has a theory. My own personal take on holacracy was that it was a solution for figuring out how to manage a company that has a leader who is by nature a little bit more of an introvert, who's not that great at communicating his vision super clearly and explicitly, and who doesn't like to tell people no to their face, and who doesn't like to solve arguments between all the other top-level executives and forces them to make those decisions themselves. So do you mean Tony was conflict avoider? 100%, in my opinion. And I have that perspective because of personal experience I've had at Zappos interacting with Tony and with other people in management positions in situations of conflict. Wait, can you tell us more? So that we get a sense of what this conflict avoidance was like. There was a, a, some conflict situation that had arisen that involved me in the company and Tony was very involved in the resolution of that thing, but then instead of, you know, having a conversation about it, Tony just put a book on my desk. And I felt like that was, you know, something someone who's an introvert who doesn't know how to have conversations would do. What was the book? The book was called The Right to Protest. Was that book to tell you you have the right to protest? Honestly, I don't know. I don't know if, if he was saying like, hey, you should do more than what you've done. But it's like, but I don't know any of that because I didn't actually have a conversation with him. And maybe it's also my fault for not like, you know, saying, hey, you give me this book, but what do you mean? Let's talk about this. I figured he's the one with the most agency to decide whether or not it's worth his time and his day. This is just my opinion, but if I got a book like that, I'd feel really, I don't know, confused or sort of a bit disconnected or something. I don't know, I'm just wondering how that felt. It felt really confusing. I felt like he checked out from essentially being a responsible CEO who, it's like if you know enough to want to give somebody that book, like it seems to me irresponsible to not have some kind of follow-on discussion about the context of what the heck happened. Even when they managed to actually talk, Owen struck by Tony's inability to connect. He was able to interact with you and essentially have like a full conversation in which maybe you're saying 90% of the words, but that where we're essentially has zero facial expression. There's no emotions happening or that he's created like the best emotional shield ever to prevent anyone from actually knowing what he's thinking. Various people I've spoken to tell me that around this time, Tony goes around with an entourage, 10, 12, or even 15 deep. It's hard to catch him on his own. He's simultaneously the center of the party and also hiding away. Even via email, Tony would apparently respond quickly, impressive for a big shot CEO. 
But then he'd add tons of people into emails, another sense that he's slipping away into the crowd. Entrepreneurs involved in the project describe an atmosphere of non-stop partying and intense pressures to be happy, to always be doing great, to always be crushing it, or to risk losing investment from Tony. In his quiet, detached, and somewhat awkward way, Tony builds a powerful force field around him, creating an environment where it's not just hard to be down, but it's also hard to disagree. should promote employee happiness. That's why I always tell my staff to smile or they're fired. Here's comedian Stephen Colbert in 2011, before the Downtown Project really got going, right after Tony had released his book, Delivering Happiness. Tony's a guest on The Colbert Report. Is this a cult? Um, Are you dear leader father of a cult? I mean, do you have child brides? How much control do you have over these people? Well, that's why we came up with our list of 10 core values. So if you do a Google... Fast forward, and Colbert's words sound prescient. Nearly two years into Tony's grand experiment, something's rotten in Vegas. This vision that he's been so excited about is falling apart. There was a weird amount of fear for a place that was supposed to be unicorns and sunshine. Suspicion is brewing among people Tony and the Downtown Project are supposed to help. Every time somebody gets enough power, enough money, or enough clout, they decide that they're baby god, man, king, and everybody's going to listen to them fucking talk. Our eccentric visionary, our passionate do-gooder, is brushing it all under the rug. I believe Tony Shea's response was basically, bad things happen. We should keep moving forward to continue doing the good of the program. We thought we knew who Tony was. But what if we're wrong? For... A lot of people, you know, they almost described it as being in a cult. That's next time on The Cost of Happiness. The Cost of Happiness is a production of Imperative Entertainment and Vespucci and is reported and hosted by me, Nastran Tavakolifar. For Imperative Entertainment, the executive producer is Jason Hoke. For Vespucci... The executive producers are Daniel Turkin and Johnny Galvin. The series producer is Charlie Towler. The story editors are Mira Sharma and Matt Willis. Thomas Curry is the managing producer. Audio recording by Michael Cox at Uprise Recording. Audio mix and sound design by Charlie Brandon King. Welcome to Talkville, the ultimate Smallville rewatch podcast. Guest star Sarah Carter as Alicia Baker. Although I didn't really work with her a lot. But Tom did, and they had some real big smoochy scenes. Yeah. Can we talk about that? Could there be any more sex? What was a three-page makeout scene that just kept going? Good Lord. We get it. They have chemistry. Jump in now or catch up on any of the past seasons of Talkville on YouTube or wherever you listen.